Amen. Let us bow our hearts for prayer, shall we? Thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness, for your love and your mercy, and for this wonderful privilege. Lord, we've been having such a wonderful time together, studying and learning and growing. Thank you so much for the, the bread that you've, been, that you've been breaking for us, and it's just been so tasty, so nourishing to our souls. And now, dear Lord, as we have come together again, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, speak to us, and give us spiritual ears that we might hear your voice, the voice of the gentle shepherd calling us. And I pray, Lord, that we would not only hear your voice, but that you would give us a love for you and a courage that we will follow your voice. Because, Lord, you said in your word that we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And Lord, we know that the doing is not something that we can, that we don't have the strength to accomplish, but it's something that we allow you to do in our lives, for our lives, and through our lives. And so please bless us tonight, dear Lord. We pray that you remove every distracting demonic spirit and that only the Holy Spirit will be known and heard and experienced in this place tonight. Please bless us, and we thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Help us, God. Our message tonight, survivors of the longest war, in search for the true church. Ladies and gentlemen, we learned on previous nights that we are all in the midst of a war, a great controversy a cosmic conflict, a supernatural battle between good and evil. The intensity of this battle is more than words can describe. The casualties of the conflict are countless. What war is this? It's the war between good and evil, of course. And this war is the longest war that has ever been fought. Over 6,000 years in the battlefield of planet Earth, and thank God this war is soon to come to an end. And the last ones standing in this war, the survivors of this longest war, are simply God's people who will live at the very end of the world. The last one standing, the remnant church, the faithful bride of Christ of the last days. And tonight we're going to find out who they are because, friends, tonight all around the world, and even in Bakersfield, there are people who are wanting to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do we have some of those people here tonight? That's what we want, what we want friends, not opinions, not interpretations, not speculations. We just want truth. And one of the most important questions that people are asking in dealing with truth is that which church is God's true church? Does he have a church on earth that he would call his own? And if Jesus was to move <clears throat> to Bakersfield, what church would he be a part of? Now, I believe that Christ perhaps would visit every church. Can you say amen? But we're not talking about visiting churches or fellowshipping with churches. We're talking about membership. Which church would he have his membership at? Because, friends, wherever Jesus' membership is, that's where I want my membership to be, amen? And some people ask, well, does it really matter which church you belong to as long as you belong to a church? Well, friends, according to the Bible, it matters. 
Because as we learned last night, not every path leads to the same destination. There's only one way to be saved, friends, and that's not through a church denomination. It's through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And friends, the reason why there are so many different denominations today is because almost every church in Bakersfield, in different degrees, accepts and rejects the truth of God's Word. Let me say that again. Almost every church in the world, and even in Bakersfield, in different degrees, in varying degrees, accepts and also rejects the truth of God's Word. But the promise of Jesus is this. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into how much? <coughs> Not into some of it or most of it, but into all of it. In other words, if we're truly being led by the Holy Spirit, we indeed will be led into all of the truth. And if that's the promise of Jesus, it now begs the question, well, does God have a church on earth that indeed teaches all truth? A movement on earth that are being led by the Holy Spirit into everything and that has a desire and a mission to propagate and to proclaim that to the whole world. Does God have a church on earth like that? And if so, how do we find it? How do we identify that church? Well, first of all, let's establish from the Bible that Jesus indeed does have a church. And we find this reality made plain in Matthew chapter 16. And so take your Bible and open to the book of Matthew. And we're going to go to the 16th chapter as we begin our study tonight. <clears throat> Matthew, what chapter did I say? And that's page 966 if you're using our seminar Bible. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 15, Jesus here asked the disciples who they think He is. And notice what it says. Matthew 16, verse 15, the Bible says, But He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And then Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Verse 18, And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter. Thou art who? <clears throat> Peter. And upon this rock I will build, what are the next two words? My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here, according to these clear words of, of Jesus, God indeed has a church that He Himself built upon a solid rock foundation. And the gates of hell can never overcome the church of God. And so we see clearly that Christ does have a church on earth, an organized body that He Himself has founded upon the rock. And friends, this is the church that God is calling all of His sheep to become a part of, the one that has a solid rock foundation. Because, friends, listen, not every church on earth has a solid rock foundation. Some churches' foundations are the sinking, shifting sands of the opinions of man. But Christ's church, the church of Jesus, has a solid rock. And no matter how strong the storms blow upon the church, it's going to stand until the end. And that's the church I want to be a part of. Amen? <clears throat> Now, some people have read this passage and have come to the faulty conclusion 
that Jesus built his church upon Peter. And Peter was the first pope. And because of that, the church is above the Bible. But friends, is that what Jesus is saying here? Did he build his church upon faulty Peter? If he did, that would be too weak of a foundation. It could not be Peter that was the foundation of the church. How do we know? Because the gates of hell did prevail against Peter. Satan overcame Peter in the very context of the passage. In fact, if you jump down to verse 21, Jesus is prophesying about his coming crucifixion. Notice how Peter responds to the word of Jesus. Verse 22, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Here Peter is denying and, and, and basically rebuking what Jesus is saying. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And so here we find... Peter, at first, he said the right thing. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, yes, my Father has revealed that to you. And then after that, in the same context, Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan, which shows that the gates of hell did prevail against Peter, that Peter was overcome that when he was rebuking Jesus, discouraging him from going to the cross, he was speaking under the inspiration of the enemy himself, which shows that Peter could not have been the foundation of the church of God. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Therefore, this rock has to be something different than Peter. In, fa in fact, let's read it again. Uh, uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, this is Jesus speaking, <clears throat> And I also say unto thee, thou art Peter. Now, friends, that word Peter in the Greek is the word Petros. Can you say that? And the word Petros means a little pebble, a rolling stone, an unstable stone. That's what Peter means. Not a solid rock, but a rolling stone. You are Peter, Petros. And upon this rock, now the word rock in the Greek is the word Petra. Can you see that? Petra is not the same as Petros. Petros denotes a little pebble, a rolling stone, a shifting rock. But the word Petra, it means solid rock of immense proportion. In other words, what Jesus is doing in this passage He's making a contrast. You are Peter, a little pebble, a rolling stone. One moment you're saying the right thing, and the other moment you're saying the wrong thing, and you're unstable, you're shifting like a rolling stone. But upon this rock, this solid rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell is not going to prevail against it because it's founded upon this rock. Now, friends, the rock can't be Peter. He's the rolling stone. So what is this solid rock that Jesus built his church upon? Who's the rock, friends? The rock is not some wrestler on WWE. Jesus is the rock. Can you say amen? He is the rock of our salvation, and his banner over us is love. In fact, if you read in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, the Bible says that Christ is the rock, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. In fact, notice, Peter understood this as well. And the apostle Paul also wrote, 
in Ephesians 2.20, and art built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not so much them as individuals, but rather their words and their writings, in other words, the Word of God, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the what? The chief cornerstone, Jesus is that rock. He is the stone. He is the foundation of the true church of God. And friends, this is the church that Jesus founded, an organized, visible body on earth. You know, some people are against organized religion, but the Bible tells us that God is a God of order. The Bible says, let everything but be done decently and in order. He has founded a visible, organized movement on earth whose mission is to take the gospel to the whole world. And friends, in order to have movement, you first have to have organization. <clears throat> and so, notice what Jesus said in John 10, 16. We read this last night, but let's read it, read it again. Jesus, in this passage, is introducing himself as the gentle shepherd. Another word for shepherd is pastor. He's the true pastor of the, of the flock. And the true pastor, Jesus, he says, other sheep I have which are not of this what? <clears throat> so listen, friends, Jesus has sheep who are sincere believers in him that are not of the fold. I'll be the first to tell you that God has his sheep, his people in every single fold, in every single church, in every single denomination under the sun. You'll find the people of God, individuals who are sincere, living up to all the light they know. And while they may not have all the light, and while they may be even practicing things that are not biblical, if they're sincere and if they don't know any better, God sees and recognizes them as his sheep. Can you say amen? Because God only holds us accountable to the light and knowledge and information that we have been given. He doesn't expect us to follow something that we never heard of before. And so God has his people in every single fold, every single denomination, Catholic and Protestant alike, you'll find the people of God. Every denomination will be represented in heaven because God has his sheep that are not of this fold. Amen? I believe even in other religions, individuals who are sincere, maybe they never heard the name of Jesus before, and yet they're following the Holy Spirit as, as He speaks to their minds and consciences. Many of them are going to be saved. God judges us based upon the knowledge that we have. But here's the thing. Is it God's will for His sheep to be scattered into every different fold, church, and denomination? No, friends, he doesn't want us to be divided. He wants us to be one. And that's the reason why the rest of the verse says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must, what? Bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be how many flocks? One flock and one shepherd. The same way there's only one true shepherd, one true pastor, that's Jesus. According to his own words, there's only one true flock, friends. Now, he has sheep in many flocks, many folds, many churches, but there's only one that has a solid rock foundation that God recognizes as his. Make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus is not a polygamist. He does not have many brides. He has one. The bride of Christ is simply the church of God. And so he's bringing his sheep together from all the different folds, all the different churches, all the different denominations, and the sheep who really know the shepherd are going to follow the shepherd, and they're going to be brought together into one fold, one true church that is unified, not just in spirit, but unified in spirit and truth together, which makes them the true worshipers of God. Amen? <clears throat>
Now, notice the characteristic of a sheep as we lay the foundation tonight. The Bible says, the sheep will hear my voice. And then in verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they do what? They follow me. In other words, the, the true sheep, the true believers, they not only hear the voice, but they follow. They're not just hearers of the word, but they're doers of the word as well. In other words, here's the characteristic of a sheep. When they hear truth, they recognize, hey, wait a minute, that makes sense. That's the shepherd's voice. Even though that truth may be different from what they grew up believing, they hear it, and they, it may sound strange at first, but when they, when they listen, when they study, they, they realize this is true, this is the shepherd's voice. And not only do they understand truth when they hear it, but they actually do something about it. They make a decision. Hey, what? A decision to apply truth to their lives. They make a decision to actually follow the truth. That's the characteristic of a sheep. And there's a lot of people who claim to be sheep, but friends, if you want to really be a sheep, you have to hear the voice and follow the voice. And I don't know about you, but I just want to be a sheep. Amen? <laughs> I want to hear that voice, understand truth, and follow it because I love Jesus. Now, our loyalty is to the, is to the true pastor which is Christ, not to a church. If you're to ask a person, why do you go to church you go to, you'll find a various different answers that people give. Most people say, you know, I go to the church I go to because that's where my parents went, and I grew up in that church, and, you know, my grandparents, great-grandparents, and, you know, it's just a family tradition. I was born in it. I'm going to die in it. That's why I go there. Other people say, I go to church I go to because it's close by my house, and I can save money on gas, and it's very convenient for me. Other people say, I go to the church I go to because, man, the building is so nice and the stained glass is lovely and the seats are so comfortable and the air conditioning, oh, it's just a very nice atmosphere. Others say, I go to the church I go to because very influential people go to that church. And, you know, I want to be a part of that as well. Or people say, but the music is so amazing, it's charismatic, they make me feel good, and the children's program is awesome, and, and the, the preacher is just a nice guy, and that's the reason why I go to that church. Others say, I go to the church I go to because, you know, I have a ministry there, and if I didn't show up, things would fall apart. So many different reasons people give as to why they go to churches. And friends, while these may not be bad reasons, they are not biblical reasons. You see, friends, listen, listen. We ought to have a biblical reason why we go to the specific church we go to instead of any other church. Because the Bible says, in 1 Peter 3.15, write it down, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is within you, that is in you with meekness and fear. So the Bible says that we need to be ready to give an answer as to why we believe what we believe, and it shouldn't just be an opinion. It ought to be an answer based upon the Bible. Can you say amen? And so let me just ask you the question tonight, friends. Why do you go to the church you go to, whatever church that is? And if you can't respond to that question by opening the Bible and giving me sound biblical reasons why you go to that church, if you don't have a Bible reason, then I want to submit to us tonight that we need to re-examine. We need to what? Why we go to that church. Why we believe what we believe. And what we ought to do is open the Word of God and ask the questions, what are the biblical reasons for belonging to a church, and what are the biblical characteristics of God's church? 
And when we have those answers, it's then that we have a solid foundation as to why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. Can you say amen? And so now the next question is this. What are the biblical reasons for belonging to a church? Is it because of the music or the children's program or the stained glass windows? What's the reason? Here's the reason, friends. 1 Timothy 3.15, write it down. <clears throat> the Bible says, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Friends, the church, God's true church, would be the pillar and ground of truth. That's the biblical reason for belonging to a church. It's because that church teaches and preaches the truth of God's Word. It's the pillar and ground of truth. It's a safe place to learn the truth, to hear the truth, to share the truth, to believe the truth, and to live the truth. That's why we ought to belong to a specific church, not because the pastor is a nice guy, or the music is charismatic, or they have awesome food at potluck. Amen. I mean, those are nice reasons, but the main reason, the biblical reason, is because this church, church teaches the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because the church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Therefore, no matter how nice the music is, or how comfortable the atmosphere, or awesome the children's program, if that church does not teach the truth, it's not a church that we want to be a part of. Because God's church is the pillar and ground of truth. Does that make sense? Now, what is truth, though? The Bible gives us three definitions of truth. Let's go a little bit deeper. Write them down. What is truth? Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thus, God's true church would lift up Christ, not a man, not an individual, not a pastor, but it would lift up Jesus as the only way to salvation. What else is truth? John 17, 17, Christ said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So God's church is going to lift up the word of God, not popular theologians and the teachings of man, nor the, 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 the teachings of philosophy and the modern thinking of the culture of the day. God's true church would lift up the Word of God, which is the truth. What else is truth? Psalms 119, 142 says, the law of God is truth. So God's true church, if it's the pillar and ground of truth, it would uphold the claims of God's holy law, the Ten Commandments, not just nine commandments, but all ten, including the fourth that says, remember the seven-day Sabbath. And that's why the church is the pillar and ground of truth. It's a place for us to get to know Jesus, the words of Jesus, and the law of Jesus. In fact, if you're to look up the definition of the word church in the original Greek, the word church in Greek is the word ekklesia. Can you say that? And the word ekklesia simply means a gathering of ones called out. So listen, friends, the biblical definition of church is not a literal building made of, brook, of, of wood and, and bricks and mortar. The, a church is a gathering of individuals who have been called out. Called out of what? Called out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Called out of Babylon and into God's true bride. You see, friends, tonight, even in Bakersfield, there are thousands, hundreds and thousands of different denominations to choose from in the world today. And do we need to go to every one of those churches to Find, try and discover God's true church, friends, 
If you did it that way, that would take a lifetime and you wouldn't even be finished. I'm thankful that that's not the method. All we need to do, friends, to discover God's true church is open the Word of God. Because the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, reveals the characteristics of God's remnant church. Now, remember, don't don't misunderstand. God has His people in all churches, amen? So we're not talking about individuals, but we're talking about His organized body on earth that has a solid rock foundation. And Revelation reveals two types of women, a woman in white and a woman in red, representing two types of churches as we studied before. The woman clothed in pure white garments represents God's pure church, the bride of Christ, the one that has always remained faithful. She is standing on the moon, which is a solid rock foundation. And then you have a harlot woman that we just studied about. In her hand is a golden cup of abominations. This woman is called Babylon. She's a harlot. It represents the apostate or unfaithful church. And friends, let's just review what we studied before. Remember Babylon? She's riding upon a beast. And in prophecy, a beast is a symbol of a, <clears throat> a kingdom. Woman is a symbol of a church. So here's a church that rides upon a political power. It is a church dominating civil powers, a church-state union together. She is called Babylon. Do you remember what's in her hand? The golden cup full of what? The wine of abominations that brings spiritual fornication. We learn very clearly that wine represents lies. It represents false doctrine, false teachings, a mixture of truth and error together that brings spiritual confusion to individuals. And we also saw that in Revelation 17, 5, that, 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 that she is called Babylon, the mother of what? So she is a mother church, but she, is also, she also had some daughters, which are also called harlots as well. Now, friends, remember, in order for you to be a mother, you have to have children. So this mother church had daughter churches, Protestant churches that came out from her. Now, when a baby is born into the world, a baby does not begin in harlotry. A baby is pure and innocent. So, too, these daughter Protestant churches, when they first came out of the Catholic Church, they began pure. God was using them to protest error. The Baptists and the Methodists and the the Lutherans and, and the Hussites, God was using. These are the daughters. And God was using them at first to restore truth, as we studied last night. But as time went on, many of these same daughter Protestant churches ended up becoming harlots as well when they started compromising the Word of God, and they no longer protested error, but rather they embraced it. And we find that that is happening today. The Bible tells us that Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Why? Because not only is the mother church fallen, but also the daughter churches. Both the mother and daughter church, apostate churches of the world constitute Babylon. And it says it's fallen, it's fallen. Both the mother as well as the daughters. And that's why it says in Revelation 18:4, come out of her, my people. Does God have many of his people in the churches of Babylon? Yes or no? Of course, friends. As we said before, God has His people in every single denomination who are sincere, living up to all the light they know. He recognizes them as His children and His people, and many of them are going to be saved because, they never, uh, because of their sincerity and they're living up to all the light they have, and they truly love Jesus in their hearts. But God does not want His people to remain scattered into all the different folds and churches of Babylon, and that's why one of His last calls in the last days is for them to come out 
that you be not partakers of her what? And friends, do you remember what the biblical definition of sin is? Sin is the breaking of the law, 1 John 3, 4. In other words, these are churches that have broken God's law. Oh, they may keep nine commandments, but there's one that they have chosen to break and ignore and say it's not that important. And so God says, come out of her that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. God has his people in every church, but he wants them to come out. He's calling us together. Remember, the definition of church is a gathering of those who have been called out. And as you're called out of something, simultaneously, you're called in to something else. And what are they called into? The other woman, the pure bride, the beloved church of God that is clothed in pure white garments. Why? Because she has a pure faith received directly from the Word of God itself, untainted, unmixed with traditions and opinions of men. And so this is the church we want to be a part of, God's faithful bride. Can you say amen? Now let's study who this bride is. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 12, where we find the biblical characteristics of the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight in this chapter. We're going to go through the whole thing. Revelation 12, beginning with verse 1, notice what it says. Revelation 12, verse 1, if you're there, would you please say amen. The Bible says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Notice, friends, that this woman has three specific characteristics, and I want you to write this down quickly. We don't have the time to look up these verses, but let me explain it to you as fast as I can. We're not talking about a literal woman, friends. We're talking about a church. Woman represents a church, but this church has three characteristics. It says she's clothed with the sun, and according to Malachi 4 and verse 2, as well as Psalms 84 verse 11, the sun is a symbol of righteousness. In other words, here's a church that is not clothed with her own self-righteousness. She is clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? She stands in Christ's righteousness. Second characteristic, it says that she has the moon under her feet. She is standing upon the moon, a solid rock foundation, the foundation of the church. And the moon in the Bible According to Psalms 89, verse 37, listen carefully, I'm going to quote it. Psalms 89, 37 tells us that the moon is the faithful witness in the heavens. The moon is the what? The faithful witness. But tell me, friends, does the moon have its own light, yes or no? Well, friends, the moon doesn't have light in itself. It simply reflects or witnesses to the light of the sun. And what do we have that reflects the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son? The Word of God, friends. The Bible doesn't have light in itself. It only has light as it reflects the Son, Jesus Christ. The written Word is a reflection of the living Word. Are you with me? And that's what Jesus said in John 5, 39. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. So when it says she's standing upon the moon, it simply means that her foundation is the Word of God, the faithful witness, the Bible. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? 
Third characteristic, she has a crown of 12 stars. Stars, according to Revelation 1.20, are angels. And the Greek word for angel is angelos, which simply means a messenger. So she is guided by the light of 12 messengers. What are those? The 12 apostles, of course. The leaders of the New Testament early apostolic church. So friends, what we're reading here in Revelation 12, when you talk about this woman, it represents the church of the first century. The church that Jesus came through, but also the church that he established himself. The original church, they have a pure faith. It's the one that has a solid rock foundation, the beloved bride of Christ. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, friends, listen. This chapter, Revelation 12, not only describes the original early apostolic church, the woman, but it also describes the remnant of the early apostolic church. Let me explain. Revelation, the 12th chapter, traces the great controversy between good and evil from beginning to end. The whole chapter describes the controversy. And what it does, friends, is that it gives different snapshots of the great controversy during different time periods from beginning to end. So it will give a snapshot of the controversy as it began in heaven, and then it would fast forward and give another snapshot of the controversy on earth during the time of Christ, and then it will give another snapshot of the controversy during the dark ages. And so it's not so much in chronological order, it's just giving snapshots of the controversy here, there, but then when you get to the end of Revelation 12, it will then describe the characteristics of God's end-time remnant church. So before we get to that part, let's first survey the controversy from beginning to end. Let's read now Revelation 12 and verse 7. Here's the beginning of the great controversy. The Bible says in Revelation 12, 7, And there was war where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we find war broke loose in heaven itself when Satan, Lucifer who became Satan, rebelled against God. And friends, the Bible tells us that at the very onset of the war, at the very beginning of the war, God was victorious and Satan was kicked out of heaven. Can you say amen? God has always been the victor from the very beginning of time. And if we want to win the victory, we need to align ourselves with the Lord Jesus. Amen? Now, I want you to notice, when you read verse 4, it gives you another snapshot of the controversy. <clears throat> verse 4 tells us that the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to deliver, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So here's another snapshot of the controversy. This time, as Jesus was about, about to come into the world, it says that the dragon, who is Satan, tried to destroy Jesus as soon as he was incarnated in human flesh. Now, friends, do you remember how Satan tried to destroy Jesus? He inspired Herod of the pagan Roman Empire to issue a decree to kill all male children under the age of two in the little town of Bethlehem thus fulfilling the prophecy that the dragon sought to devour the child as soon as he was born, trying to destroy the child Jesus. But God gave Joseph dreams, and they fled into Egypt, and the son Jesus was protected from the wrath of the dragon. And God will protect us as well. Amen? 
But then, fast forward about 33 and a half years later, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies on Calvary's cross. But thank God he did not stay dead. Early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he came forth from the tomb as a conqueror over death. Jesus came to reverse the curse. He took our curse so that we could have his blessing. And then we find in verse 5, the very next verse, is a summary of the entire life of Christ. It says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That's the whole life of Christ in one verse. And basically it says this, He came and he won. Can you say amen? And he went back to heaven and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And so Satan had an opportunity to attack and try to destroy Christ when he was on earth. But Jesus won the victory not only in heaven, he won the victory on earth, even when Satan had the home field advantage. Christ was victorious over evil. Can you say amen? And so he goes back to heaven in the resurrection. He ascends to, meet, uh, to, to go back to the Father. And then after that, Satan, the dragon, because he can no longer touch Jesus personally, he now turns his attacks against the beloved bride of Jesus. That is the New Testament church, the beloved bride of Christ. That's why it says in verse 13, now notice another snapshot of the controversy, this time during the days of the early apostolic church. The Bible says, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he did what? Persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And history tells us very clearly that that's exactly what happened. The dragon, Satan, tried to destroy God's church, that woman, through persecution. The, the, the pagan emperors of Rome put to death many of these Christians, throwing them to the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals. The apostle Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. They died in cruel and torturous ways, friends. The dragon was angry with the woman, seeking to persecute her and wipe her out. But no matter how much he tried to persecute them, as we studied last night, they continued to grow. Amen? Death could not defeat the church. Why? Because Jesus said that the gates of hell, Hades, the grave, would not prevail against the church of God. And that's why the Bible says in verse 11, Revelation 12, they, that is the bride, the church, they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Those martyrs died triumphantly for the faith. They would rather die for Jesus than to live a lie for Satan. And so they prevailed. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives unto death. They willingly laid down their life because they understood that a servant is not greater than the master, and if their master Christ laid down his life for them, they had the faith and the love to be willing to do the same thing for him. And they died with the blessed hope burning in their hearts of the resurrection when the Lord Jesus returns. Amen? And so the dragon couldn't destroy the church by persecution, so he had to change his strategy. And that's what happened. When paganism enters the church, Satan says, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. I'll infiltrate them bringing in false doctrines and deceptions. And that's what happened when Constantine joined the church and church and state united. And friends, what happened was now compromise was brought within and now the dragon sought to persecute God's people through a church that claimed Christ as their master. The Bible, not the Bible, but history tells us that great numbers were driven from their habitations 
with their wives and children stripped and naked, many of them inhumanely massacred. comes from a book, The History of the Popes. That's what happened, friends. It was tragic. Over 50 million Christians died by the hands of the medieval church, and their crime was that they wanted to remain faithful to God and His Word, and those reformers were persecuted for their faith. But then notice what happens in the prophecy. In verse 6, another snapshot of the controversy, this time during the Dark Ages. It says, And the woman, who's the woman? <clears throat> the church, the beloved bride of Christ, fled where? Into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there, how long? A thousand two hundred and sixty days. So the Bible is prophesying that God's true church, the beloved bride of Christ, would have to flee into the wilderness and she would remain in the wilderness underground for 1,260 prophetic days. In other words, during this time period, the visible church was not God's bride. That was the harlot woman that was reigning. The beloved bride went now into the wilderness underground. She was hiding in the, in the wilderness, and she would remain there for 1,260 days. Are these literal days, or are they prophetic days? They're prophetic days because it's in a prophetic context. The dragon is not literal, it's symbolic. And if the dragon is symbolic, so too are the days because we have to be consistent in our interpretation. Amen? And so the next question is, how much or how long is one prophetic day? According to the Bible, one prophetic day equals one literal year. And you can write down Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34 for the evidence. And many scholars of many different churches agree that in a prophetic context, one prophetic day represents one literal year. So 1,260 prophetic days would be 1,260 literal years. And friends, this period is known in history as the Dark Ages. It began in 538 A.D. when the Bishop of Rome had, was granted by Justinian authority over all the kingdoms of Europe, and the church had absolute control over the state, that's the beginning of the harlot woman's reign. And it ended in the year 1798 when the papacy was stripped of its secular power over the nations. Exactly 1260 years, friends, just as the Bible said. During this time period as the dark, known as the Dark Ages, the beloved bride of Christ would be underground, hiding in the wilderness, being persecuted by the harlot church, the apostate system. Now notice, what would happen during this time period? Verse 15 of Revelation 12, another snapshot of the controversy. It says, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a what? A flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. So Satan tried to destroy the beloved bride of Christ hiding in the wilderness by a flood of water. Now what does the flood represent? Psalms 18 verse 4 tells us, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of what? Ungodly men made me afraid. So if water represents multitudes of people, then floods would represent people who would persecute and destroy. So during the 1260 years when the bride of Christ was hiding in the wilderness, Satan tried to destroy them by a flood of ungodly men. Those were the papal persecutors. But thank God he provided refuge for his bride. In verse 16, it says, And the earth helped the woman. Who helped the woman? The earth helped the woman, 
and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. The earth helps the woman by swallowing up the flood. Now, what does it mean when the Bible says <coughs> that the earth helped the woman? Well, friends, when you study history during the Dark Ages, God's true people found refuge from the flood of papal persecution by hiding in the wilderness or the secret places of the earth. Tori Pelici was one of those places. I took this picture. I saw it with my own eyes. The mountainous villages of northern Italy and southern France offered refuge and protection for the Bible-believing Waldensians. They would run to the rocks and mountains, and they would hide in the caves, and it was there in these, this mountainous region that they were able to preserve the ancient faith and worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience, thus fulfilling the prophecy that the earth helped the woman. But not only that, you also discover that towards the end of the 1260-year hiding, that God's faithful people found refuge from papal persecution by a new part of the earth. Our pilgrim fathers were fleeing the European countries, searching for a land where they were able to find religious freedom, friends, that they could worship God according to their own conscience, according to the Word of God. And so our pilgrim fathers landed in a new part of the earth, and that is here in the Americas, thus fulfilling the prophecy that the earth helped the woman. Can you say amen? Now, friends, that's exciting. That shows that the Bible actually was prophesying about the, 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 this country, friends, and the refuge it provided. And friends, one of the most glorious things about the United States of America is the First Amendment, where we have the freedom to worship God, the freedom to, without any interference from government. Can you say freedom of speech, freedom of the press? And that is a glorious freedom that most people in the world don't know, friends. And that's the beauty of belonging to this country. Can you say amen? The earth helped the woman. Now, this gives us one of our first identifying characteristics as to who God's faithful bride, His true church, is. Because listen, at the end of the 1260 years of hiding, Revelation now reveals the rise of God's end-time remnant church. Now we go to the last verse of Revelation 12, that's verse 17, where it prophesies about the remnant of the woman, the final church of the last days. Let's read it now. The Bible says, and the dragon, who's the dragon? <clears throat> Satan was wroth with the woman. Who's the woman? <clears throat> the church, but which church? The early apostolic church and the church that was hiding where? <clears throat> In the wilderness. So Satan is angry with the woman. That's the early apostolic church and the church that we just traced that hid in the wilderness for 1260 years. But then notice what it says. He's, he's wroth with the woman and went to make war, not with the woman, but with the what? Remnant of her seed. Now, friends, why is the dragon attacking, not attacking the woman, but attacking the remnant of her seed? Here's the reason. Because by this time, the woman is passed off the scene. We're, we're, we're beyond the days of the hiding in the, in the wilderness. The early apostolic church is finished. That's history. But however, the woman has a remnant of her seed, her offspring, or her children. In other words, the Bible is saying that God is going to have an end-time church, 
a remnant church, which shows that God's remnant church, listen, must rise into existence in an organized sense sometime after the year 1798. And the reason is this, because before 1798, where was the true bride? Hiding in the wilderness. But after 1798, she can emerge in an organized, visible sense. Therefore, any church that existed before 1798 in an organized sense could not have been God's remnant church because His church was hiding. Now, friends, let's examine this word remnant a little bit more carefully. This word remnant is very important. It has two meanings. How many? Number one, it means that which remains or the leftovers. The leftovers, the last part, that which remains, the end time part. It also means that which is just like the original. That which remains and is just like the original. If you're to go to a fabric or carpet store, many times you'll find a remnant sale. And what is a remnant sale? It's the last piece of cloth on the boat of cloth. It's the last part. It's the leftovers. That's why they have it on sale. They're trying to get rid of it. The last part. But here's the thing, friends. The last part is just like the first part. The first part of cloth that came off the boat. The boat of cloth. Now, if the first part of the cloth was made of velvet, is the remnant going to be made of cotton? What is it going to be made of? It must be made of velvet. Why? Because the remnant is just like the original. Now, if the remnant has, is white, is the original going to be black? What is the original going to be? It's going to be white as well. Now, if the original had blue stripes, what color are the stripes on the remnant? They're going to be blue as well. Why? Because it's just like the original. So, do you see what the Bible is saying, friends? When it uses the word remnant, it, it's making very clear that God is going to have an end-time church that's just like the original one that has a solid foundation. Just like the original one that had a pure faith, they had all the truth, they had the faith of Jesus, so to the remnant will have it all as well. An end-time church. And friends, remember, that's the church that Jesus is wanting to gather all of his sheep, sheep to become a member of. These are the survivors of the longest war, individuals who have remained faithful to the pure message of the Lord Jesus Christ as, as, as has been revealed to us by the Holy Word of God, the survivors of the longest war. Now, who is this remnant? God does not leave us to guess. He gives to us specific characteristics. Now, let's examine the five main characteristics of the remnant church. It says in Revelation 12, the rest of verse 17, it says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman. Who's the woman? But which church? The early apostolic church, the original one, and their church hiding in the wilderness. But then he uh, makes war with the who? And who's the remnant? It's the one that comes up after the hiding in the wilderness, after 1798, the last part the remnant of her seed, and notice their characteristics, which keep the what? Commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Write it down, friends. Those are two characteristics, two identifying marks, two fingerprints of God's end-time church. 
It would keep the commandments of God. It would lovingly obey all of God's commandments. Friends, do you realize that that characteristic right there, when it says that they keep the commandments of God, that one characteristic wipes out almost 99% of all churches in the world today. Because, friends, when you think about it, most of the churches today only keep nine commandments. Isn't that right? Thou shalt not kill. Oh, yes, I believe in that. Thou shalt not steal. Yes, we shouldn't be stealing. Take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Yes, we should not take his name in vain. Every church agrees with nine commandments, but most churches disagree with the fourth that says, remember the Sabbath. But the remnant is just like the original. The original church kept the Sabbath, kept all of God's commandments. And so to the remnant, we'll also keep the Sabbath commandment as well. Can you say amen? Therefore, God's remnant church cannot be a Sunday-keeping church, friends. We can worship on Sunday. We can worship on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's not a matter of worship. It's more than that. It's a matter of which day you keep as the Holy Sabbath day. Because the Bible tells us in James 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is become guilty of all. As I mentioned last night, or the, the, the other night, God does not give 10% discounts when it comes to His law. Amen? All of them are important. They all, either they all stand together or they all fall together. We cannot divorce the fourth commandment from the Ten Commandments. All of them are important. And so this one commandment, notice, friends, look, this one commandment wipes out 99% of all churches. So God's remnant must be a Sabbath-keeping church. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Because they're just like the original. And then the next one, it has the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? What is the testimony of Jesus? Please write it down. In Revelation 19 and verse 10, the Bible says, the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. Notice carefully, friends, that the testimony of Jesus is defined as the spirit of prophecy. The remnant church has the spirit of prophecy. In other words, they believe and teach and preach all the writings of the prophets. They don't pick and choose, friends. They believe it all. They are a movement of prophecy. They understand prophecy. They teach prophecy. In fact, they even have a reputation of, of, of proclaiming and teaching prophecy and holding Bible prophecy seminars because they have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And so, notice another characteristic as we continue. In Revelation 14, now verse 12, it gives us additional information. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the what again? <clears throat> Commandments of God. So it emphasizes again, they're commandment keepers. And the faith what? Not only faith in Jesus, they have the faith of Jesus. Do you remember we talked about that last night? What is the difference? The word in is the word of position. You are in something. It's position. The word of is a word of possession. They are not only positioned in Christ, but they actually possess the faith of Christ in them. They have the faith of Jesus. Now, friends, is the faith of Jesus, is that a complete or an incomplete faith? It's a complete faith, friends. In other words, they believe just like Jesus. And that's a pure faith. They believe in all the truth. They have the faith of Jesus. Now, what exactly is the faith of Jesus? Well, friends, all you have to do to answer that is ask, well, what did Jesus teach? Because whatever he taught was his faith. And so what did Jesus teach? 
Let's review. Did Jesus teach in the authority of the Scriptures? Yes or no? Yes, he said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so the remnant church will believe in the authority of the Scriptures because that's what Jesus believed, and they have the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus teach that we, ought to, that, that we are saved by His grace and His grace alone? Yes. In John 14, 6, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so to God's remnant church, we'll believe that Jesus is the only way we're going to be saved because that's the faith of Jesus, and they have the faith of Jesus. And if you believe that, would you please say amen? Now, friends, did Jesus teach that we ought to lovingly obey and keep the Ten Commandments? Yes. In John 14, 15, Christ said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Don't do it because you're trying to earn something or trying to save yourself. You can't. We only keep the commandments because we love the Lord because he first loved us. That's what Jesus taught. So to the remnant church, we'll teach the same thing because they have the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus teach that we ought to worship and keep the seven-day Sabbath? Of course he did. In Luke 4, 16, Christ by his own example, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was a Sabbath keeper. And the remnant church will be a Sabbath-keeping church because that's what Jesus did, and they, have the, they also have the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus teach in a secret rapture theory, yes or no? No, friends. He didn't teach anything about a secret rapture. Jesus taught that his coming was going to be visible and audible and glorious. The Bible says every eye will see him, and, and so the remnant church is not going to teach a secret rapture. They're going to teach the truth about the coming of Christ because that's what Jesus taught, and they have the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus teach that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell? Oh, friends, you need to help me out tonight. Did he teach that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell? What did he teach? He taught that death is a sleep that lasts to the resurrection. You can find that in John chapter 11 and verse 11 and other places. And so to the remnant will teach the same thing. Did Jesus, oh, excuse me, mistake here. Authority of Scripture, salvation by grace, loving obedience to the law, worshiping on the Sabbath, the second coming as a visible and glorious event, death as a sleep. Did Jesus teach in a coming judgment? Yes. In John 5, 22, amongst many other places, Christ taught about a judgment. So to the remnant will teach the same thing because that's the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus warn us against following the traditions of men above the commandments of God? Yes. In Matthew 15, verse 3 and 9, Christ said, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's what Jesus taught. So to the remnant church will teach the same thing. Did Jesus teach in the importance of baptism? Yes or no? Yes. In Mark 16, 16, Christ said, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And so to the remnant church, they're going to give people an opportunity to make a decision for baptism because that's what Jesus did, and that's what the church will do because they have the faith of Jesus. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? amen. And friends, these are the things that God's true church will teach and believe, and these are the things we've been studying and hearing night after night in this seminar, which leads us to our next identifying mark, and that's found in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, where the Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach how many nations? all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe how many things? All things whatsoever I have, what? Commanded you. So notice, friends, Jesus gave the great commission to the early apostolic church, and it basically said, go to all nations and teach 
all things. Don't cut corners. Don't water it down. Don't fluff it up. Give them everything, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so that was the commission of the original early apostolic church. But listen, it's the remnant of that church that's actually going to finish that great commission of going to all nations, teaching all things. And that's what it says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in how much of the world? All the world has a witness to how many nations? all nations, and then what's going to happen? Shall the end come? So notice, very interesting, that just before the end of time, the gospel of Christ is going to go to the whole world, to every single nation. Why? Because God so loved the world, He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to have an opportunity to hear the, the full gospel message. And friends, if it's going to go to the whole world before the end of time, that implies very strongly that God's messengers or God's church must be in all the world giving the whole complete gospel message. But friends, which gospel of the kingdom is going to go to the whole world before the end of time? It's found in Revelation 14, verses 6 and on. We've been studying this night after night. The Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, what is that word? gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to how many nations? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Friends, the only gospel in the Bible that you find going to the whole world before the end of time is the gospel spelled out in Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' messages, because it's interesting, after these three angels give their messages that we've been studying night after night, immediately after that, we find the description of the return of Jesus Christ at the harvest at His second coming. And so, therefore, God's true remnant church must be a worldwide church giving the worldwide message of the three angels in the last days. And that's our last characteristic a worldwide church with a worldwide message. They will complete the commission that was given to the early apostolic church. Now we review before we hit the punchline. God's remnant church has these five fingerprints. Number one, write it down if you missed it. Number one, it must arise sometime after the year 1798. And do you remember the reason why for that? Because before 1798, where was the bride? hiding in the wilderness. Therefore, after she's hiding, she now comes up in an organized sense, and that happened in 17, or after 1798. Number two, it would keep all of God's commands, including the fourth commandment that says, remember the seven-day Sabbath. Therefore, it would be a Sabbath-keeping church. It would not be a Sunday-keeping church. Number three, it would have the gift of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy, it would be a movement of prophecy. It would teach and preach Bible prophecy in all the world. They would believe in all the writings of the prophets. Number four, it would have the same faith of Jesus, a complete and pure faith, giving the whole message just as Jesus taught it. And number five, it would be a worldwide church giving a worldwide message of the everlasting gospel of the three angels to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. These are the five fingerprints of God's remnant church of Bible prophecy that one fold that Christ is calling His sheep to join this wonderful movement. And friends, if you look at these characteristics <clears throat> and you find a church that matches four of the characteristics, could that be the remnant church, yes or no? No, friends, if it's only four, it falls short. 
in order for it to truly be the remnant church, it has to match how many of the five characteristics? It has to match all five of them, friends. And if you look at the different denominations of the world, there's actually only one church on earth that fits every single one of these characteristics as we found in the Word of God. Only one, friends. Which church is it that preaches the same gospel in all the world? Well, friends, how many want to know? Do you want to know? If so, let me hear you say amen. Some of you look like you don't want to know. Do you want to know or not? Well, friends, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to let the American Bible Society tell us which church fits the characteristics. All of you, or unfortunately not all of you, maybe one per family. Hopefully we'll have enough. We'll try and make copies. But most of you will receive this on your way out tonight. It's, it's a handout called Partners. Let me explain what it is. It says, churches and Bible societies throughout the world are giving and working together to supply the Holy Scriptures in languages people can read and understand. The following pages show where your denomination and others are witnessing for Christ. So it was put out by the American Bible Society. And basically, it's a chart, uh, and it has a column on the top, a column on the sides. And the top column is a list, an alphabetical list of, 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 of some of the main line churches of the world today. And then on the side column is a list of the 184 countries of the world. And whenever a specific denomination is found in that specific country or has a, a presence and a ministry in that country, they put a dot right there letting you know that, hey, this church is in this country and has a mission there. And so it gives us a good idea as to which denomination is a worldwide church given a worldwide message that has the rest of the characteristics. And so let's take some of the popular churches of the world today and measure them by the biblical standard. And by the way, when you get this tonight, you'll notice that there's about six or so countries that have no churches at all. Some of these Islamic countries like Afghanistan and amongst others. And, but nonetheless, it gives us a good idea of how many, which churches are in all the world. So let's take some mainline denominations. Let's take the Assemblies of God denomination, for example. Wonderful church, beautiful people there. But they are only found in 78 of the 184 countries of the world. According to the biblical standard, they can't fit the description of being the remnant, even though many of God's people are in that church. What about the Baptist church? Wonderful people. They are right on when it comes to baptism by immersion. There are nine major fractions of Baptists in this handout, but even if we put them all together, they are only found in 97 of the 184 countries of the world, falling short of the biblical standard. The Lutheran Church, only in 48 of the 184 countries of the world. Pentecostal Church, only in 21 of the 184 countries of the world, falling short of the biblical characteristic. You see, my friends, here's the point. When choosing a church, the question we need to consider is this. How does my church measure up to the biblical standard? We should not be asking the question how nice the music is or how nice the preacher is or the children's program. We need to ask, how does this church and its teachings measure up to the biblical standard? Do they follow the truth? Do they keep the Ten Commandments? Are they built upon the complete faith of Jesus? And are they in all the world giving the final present truth gospel message to the world? These are the questions that really matter, friends, because listen, church membership does not save a single soul. 
We're not saved by being a member of any church. Not even the remnant church gives salvation. We are saved only by our relationship with Jesus Christ and the truth of the Bible. Can you say amen? However, at the same time, the Word of God teaches that Jesus does have a fold, a church that's founded upon the rock. And the Bible does say that Jesus in these last days is gathering his sheep together in that one fold, unifying them in spirit and in truth. And so we have to take that part of the Bible seriously as well. Now, friends, as you continue to look at this handout, you'll notice one of the churches up here, and you see that under, the, under that column, all of these dots, and you're like, wow, that church is in all those countries. Amazing. You go to the next page in that same church, all these dots, wow, they're reaching all those countries too. Wow. And then you look a little bit closer, you flip the back page in that same church, all those dots, wow, they're hitting those countries too. And, and, and you look a little bit closer and you say, wait a minute, this church rose up after 1798. This church keeps all of God's commandments, including the Sabbath. This one is actually known for understanding and teaching prophecy in all the world. And they're giving that same complete message. And as you look upon this, you start to get excited because you realize that the Holy Spirit has led you to discover the remnant church of Bible prophecy. And you start to get excited. Are you excited? <laughs> Friends, do you want to know which one it is? Do you? Are you sure? <laughs> Well, friends, according to this handout, the only denomination that fits every single one of the characteristics that rose up after 1798, that keeps all of God's commandments, that has the faith of Jesus, that has the spirit of prophecy, and that is in all the world giving the same message of the three angels is none other than the Seventh-day Adventist church. <clears throat> Now, friends, listen, listen, don't misunderstand. That does not mean that only Seventh-day Adventists are going to be saved. Not at all. I told you from the beginning, every denomination will be represented in heaven because God has his people in every single denomination who are living up to all the light they know. They're sincere. And while they may not have all the light, if they're doing what they know to be true and are sincere about it, many of them are going to be saved in the kingdom of God. Can you say amen? And many Seventh-day Adventists are going to be lost because membership doesn't save anyone. There's going to be many Seventh-day Adventists who are going to be lost with a head full of knowledge, but a heart empty of a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus. You see, friends, those who are Seventh-day Adventists should not be proud at this. We ought to be humble because not one of us are worthy to be a part of the beloved bride of Christ, this prophetic movement of the last days that God has risen up to restore all the truth in all the world. And friends, listen, the reason why I can say, tell you that with confidence tonight is not because I've been brought up in this church, because I was not brought up in this church. Most of my life I had no idea what a Seventh-day Adventist was. I can say that, that the remnant church of prophecy is the Seventh-day Adventist church, not because someone told me and I just believed it because they said it. No, because I study the Bible for myself, and the Bible gives us clear identifying marks. And friends, you shouldn't believe it just because someone is saying it. I want to encourage you, study for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, and you will not find a denomination on earth that matches the biblical characteristics 
other than the seven Adventist church. And friends, listen, if you can find a church on earth that teaches the Bible more accurately than the seven Adventist church and fits the biblical characteristics more accurately than the seven Adventist church, you know what you need to do? You need to go to that church. But before you go to that church, you need to tell me so that I can go to that church. <laughs> Amen? I'm not married to a church, friends. You see, we can only be loyal to a church as that church is loyal to Jesus. We can only be supportive of a denomination or a movement as that denomination is faithful to the Word of God. Amen? And I'm happy to tell you, from my experience, this church is open to let the Holy Spirit lead us further and further into a deeper understanding of truth. As we learn truth, we embrace it. We don't have a creed where it says, this is what we believe and no more, no less. No, friends, truth is progressive. The Holy Spirit is constantly leading us. But what we want to do is we want to gather all the truth and put it all together and give it to the whole world. And that's what God is doing. You see, the shepherd is seeking to unify his sheep into a one-fold, a worldwide movement to restore truth. And those who are his sheep are going to hear his voice. They're going to say, wow, that makes sense. That's the truth. And I'm going to follow the shepherd. Our loyalty is not to the church. It's to the pastor, Jesus Christ. And for those who are already a part of this remnant, we should be humble, recognizing that God has given us a great privilege to be a part of this special movement. Listen, friends, as I give you the history, a brief history now, before we wind this down to a close tonight. History tells us about the rise of God's remnant, a group that rose up in the United States of America after the year 1798, a small group of people from various different denominations who began to study the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And the prophecy that held special interest in their minds was this prophecy in Daniel 8, 14, where it says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it was a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller that calculated the time element of the prophecy that pointed to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And through careful study, he understood that this prophecy would come to an end in the year 1844. And so he began to preach that the sanctuary would be cleansed in 1844. But here's the problem with that. He believed that the sanctuary was planet Earth and that the only way the earth could be cleansed was by fire at the second coming of Christ. So he believed and he taught that Jesus is coming again in 1844, and many people started to believe it. But 1844 came and went. Jesus did not come. And those who thought he would come were bitterly disappointed. Many of them lost faith in God completely. Many of them gave up their faith. However, there was a small group of people whose faith was dramatically shaken when Jesus did not come. But afterwards, they got together and they began to pray and study like they never prayed and studied before. They started to re-examine the Scriptures. Perhaps they miscalculated the date. But upon further investigation, they saw that 1844 was a solid date confirmed by history that indeed something happened in that year. And then upon further study, they realized that they had the right date, but they had the wrong event. They thought the event was the second coming. 
However, when they went to the book of Hebrews, they realized that the Bible does not teach that the sanctuary was the earth. That was a false assumption. They were wrong. But they, then they learned that there was a sanctuary in heaven. And they understood that in that year, Jesus would move into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, beginning a special work for us to prepare us for his soon return. And out of that discovery was born a movement that would spread through the whole world and today would be the fastest growing church in the world, period, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It included a group of people, a small group, especially young people, who got together and they began, they put aside all their pre-opinionated ideas and they began to examine every major teaching of every major church in comparison with the Bible. And whatever the Baptist church had that was biblical, they kept. Whatever was not biblical, they rejected. Whatever the Presbyterians had that was biblical, they kept. Whatever was not, they rejected. Whatever the Methodists had that was true according to the Bible, they kept. Whatever was not, they rejected. And so they, they would spend almost entire nights in prayer and Bible study. It was like an upper room experience. And as they hammered out the scriptures, they began to gather all the truths from all the different denominations and rejecting all the errors that they taught, they put it all together in a package and thus was born the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They went by the Bible and the Bible alone. And as truth was being restored, God blessed them in order to share this message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and thus the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the farthest reach as far as missionaries and, and work and spreading the gospel more than any other denomination, Protestant denomination. They rose up after 1798, keeping all of God's commandments, having the gift of prophecy, understanding and teaching Bible prophecy, having the same faith of Jesus, and as a worldwide church, giving a worldwide message to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. That's a brief history. We'll talk more about that on Tuesday. But friends, as we get ready to close tonight, I want to share with you that there's actually only two churches in the world that has the last characteristic. Only two churches that are in all the world giving a message. And would you like to guess what, what those churches are? It's the woman in red and the woman in white. The Roman Catholic Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. One teaches, teaches a message that is a mingling of truth and error together, but the other one teaches the everlasting gospel found in the Word of God. And friends, God is calling us to be a part of that beloved bride, that final movement, because friends, Jesus is coming soon. And right now, before He comes, He's looking for His people. The shepherd is seeking to gather all of His sheep together into one fold in one faith. And tonight, I wonder... Are you his sheep? Are you his people? Have you heard the shepherd's voice? The Bible tells us, the shepherd says, come out of her, my people. And I'm wondering if you would respond to Jesus tonight. I'm going to give you an opportunity now as we close. As hope comes, she's going to sing. But friends, listen carefully as we wind this down. Jesus, the gentle shepherd, is the only one that can save us. And he has a movement that he's risen up to restore truth to the world. How will you respond tonight? Ushers, would you please pass out the response card? We have a card we'd like to give to you, give you an opportunity, friends, to respond to what you've heard tonight. And as they pass out that card quickly, I invite you to listen to the words of this song by Sister Hope. Allow the shepherd to lead us. 
together shall we before we do just want to read this verse from the blessed Jesus the, gen the gentle shepherd says in John 10 27 my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me oh my friends I believe that you're the sheep of God you you were brought to this place because you heard the shepherd's call you received an invitation in the mail and there's something about that flyer that said you must come Someone invited you and, and you, were, you were compelled to be here tonight. You heard the shepherd's voice and now you're here. The shepherd says to us tonight in John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Make a decision. And so let's do that together. Are you his sheep? Is he your shepherd? The first box says, I want to follow Jesus, the true shepherd and his truth as taught in the Bible. That's your decision, isn't it? If so, would you check that box? Say, yes, I wanna follow Jesus, my true shepherd. The second box says, I want to commit my life completely to Christ and be baptized, becoming a part of his Sabbath-keeping church. As the Lord has brought you to this place to a deeper understanding of his word, perhaps that's the decision you sense him calling you to make tonight if so would you check that box you want to be a part of that wonderful movement prophetic movement of destiny the third box says on my profession of faith in Christ I want to join his Sabbath keeping church based on my former baptism maybe you've been baptized in the past in another church and it was by immersion and you were sincere and there's no need for you to be baptized again but as you've learned the message of the remnant church of prophecy you want to be a part of that movement based upon your profession of faith if so would you check that box and make that decision tonight for Jesus and then the last box says Christ is convicting me to be rebaptized into all the truth and join a church family keeping the Lord's Day Sabbath if you want to be rebaptized sense the Holy Spirit calling you to that decision you make that decision tonight we're gonna to have a baptism this coming Sabbath one week from today 
We're also going to be having a baptism a month from now. And as people are ready, as the Holy Spirit leads, and friends, all we want to do here is point people to Jesus and the words of Jesus and to help people come to this most important decision of their life. And so if you're finished filling out your card, write your name and your information very, there very clearly and then the, 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 uh, the church you are a member of currently and if you're done filling out the card, I want to invite the ushers to now come to pass it out, uh, to collect the cards. If you would just uh, take that bucket and pass it down, ushers, if you want to break, begin in the front and work your way back. And uh, if you're finished, just turn the card over, put it in the box, in the, in the bucket. And as Hope sings this song, I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and listen to the message of the song. Thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to free. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, we will early turn to Thee. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, we will early turn to Thee. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank You so much for your goodness, for your kind and gentle invitation to us tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our gentle shepherd that leads us in green pastures and beside still waters. You're the one that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we don't have to be afraid because you're with us. Even in this decision tonight that for some perhaps is a difficult decision, thank you for giving us courage. Lord, we understand you're the only one that can save us. Salvation is a gift of grace. Lord, we pray that tonight, as you have revealed wonderful truth to us, that we would have the courage to follow you in everything you've revealed to us. And Lord, as we make this last appeal, please move upon the hearts of your children. Help them to hear your voice and to follow your voice, even now. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, before we dismiss, before I conclude this prayer, I just want to invite those who've made decisions for baptism tonight. I want to have special prayer with you after this service is finished again because Satan hates that decision. He's going to attack you. And so tonight, if you made that decision or if you made it the other night for baptism or rebaptism, I want to invite you to stand to your feet and come down to this altar again. Reaffirm that decision in your heart. God bless you. Would you come now if you check that box saying, yes, I want to be baptized or rebaptized? If so, come. We want to have special prayer with you. Praise the Lord. If you came the other night, come again. Reaffirm that decision. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. We're looking in our hearts and we're asking God, God, are you calling me? Is this something you want me to do? So give me the courage to stand. Give me the courage to respond. Oh, my friend, Jesus just wants to give us a brand new life, a brand new beginning. 
That's what baptism is about. Letting go of the past. Moving forward in the, in the glorious future that God has for us. Saying yes to Jesus. Saying no to the enemy. Embracing the truth. Living for Christ. Allowing him to wash away all our sins. Is there someone else who would like to respond before we pray? If so, would you come now? I know that a decision like this is something that can be challenging because the devil gives us so many reasons why we should not make the decision. And some of you might be thinking about those reasons tonight, saying to yourself, but, but, but I'm not ready. I have too many issues in my life. Well, the good news, friends, is that you can bring those issues to Jesus. He does not call those who are perfect. He calls those who are sinners, and that's all of us tonight. And he is the one that will make the change. God bless you, sister. Is there another young person who perhaps have been wasting their life on things that don't really matter, that wants to say, Lord, I'm tired of playing games. I want to live for you. I want to live for something that is more than this world. If so, would you come? Some of you perhaps are waiting. You're saying, but, you know, I'll make the decision when my spouse makes the decision. Well, God wants you to be the leader in your family. If you come, others will come. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, pray, church family, because there's a spiritual battle in this room tonight. God bless you, sister. There's a spiritual war, and Satan is, is, call, is, is causing people to stay seated, people that the Lord is calling, and they need your prayers. And so if you don't need to come because you've been baptized, pray for the person that perhaps is sitting next to you that is struggling, that God will give them courage. God bless you, sister. There's somebody else who would like to respond and say, yes, oh, I need a new beginning. I see that Jesus can give me that new beginning. Baptism, rebaptism. If so, come to the Lord Jesus tonight. God bless you. Sisters, you're making the right decision. The best decision of your life. Oh, we can hear the angels singing by faith right now for these precious people who are passing from death into life. Oh, my friend, Jesus is coming soon. Don't allow the devil to make you think that, you're gonna, that, that, that you, have, you still have a lot of time left. Friends, there's no time already. Now's the time to choose Christ, choose you this day, whom you will serve. The Lord says, come now, just as you are, and I'll make the difference in your life, in your marriage, in your family. I want to use the influence that you have over others to bring people to my message. Is there someone else who would like to respond before we close? Oh, don't wait, friends for a convenient time that time will never come right now while you hear his voice yes you, you might be hearing a man talking but God is the one that is speaking and I beg you on behalf of Christ tonight don't put it off don't wait until it's too late right now while the Lord calls come and say yes to Jesus not an emotional decision it's based on truth friends don't wait for an emotion and I know that no one likes to be pressured but it's interesting how we allow the devil to pressure us God doesn't pressure but he pleads he begs because he loves us and he wants to save us and some of you might be thinking well why do I need to come to the front because while it's a personal decision it's also a public decision Jesus walked up Mount Calvary for you in front of the jeering throng Surely you can walk down the aisle for him in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ.
God bless you. If someone else would like to respond before I pray, oh, I know it's late. Sometimes people need time to think and pray and hear God's voice. I promise, friends, you stand, you'll feel that weight, that burden drop from your shoulders. As I pray, if you sense God calling you to come, you can come even during this prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for what you've done in our hearts tonight. Lord, we're so grateful for the truth that we've learned. We're so thankful for Jesus and the sacrifice he'd made for us. And tonight, Lord, in response, we want to give you our hearts. We want to give you our lives, all of us, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. And now, Lord, I pray for these who have taken it a step further, those who come to, <coughs> to this spiritual altar, <coughs> these who are laying their life on the altar, blessed in their God. They're wanting baptism or rebaptism. They're wanting a new beginning. And, and Lord, I thank you for putting that in their hearts. And I know that Satan is going to attack them, but we pray for them, Lord. Our brothers and sisters, we pray that you will send angels to surround them, to push back every evil influence. We pray that your spirit would fill them from the crown of their head to the sole of their feet. Bless them, dear God, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their schools. I pray, Lord, that, 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 that they would never turn back, that they would keep moving forward, that they would grow in grace, and that they would be saved in your kingdom eternally, and that through their decision tonight, through their witness, many others will come to know Jesus and his truth. So bless them in a special way. Put a hedge about them and give them peace now knowing that all is well between them and heaven. We thank you so much for hearing this prayer. We thank you, Lord, for being our shepherd. Help us to trust you as we walk with you day by day. This is our prayer, and we pray this in Jesus' blessed name. And all of God's sheep said, Amen. Amen.